I'm reading uh, Psalm 60 this morning, and if you are using the, the Pew Bibles, it's page 478, Psalm 60. To the choir master, according to Shushan Edoth, a mictum of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you've rejected us, broken our defenses. You've been angry. O restore us. You've made the land to quake, and you've torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things, and you've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You've set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand, and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and pour out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin, and upon Edom I cast my shoe. For Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dan. Kids, I especially want to thank you guys for being here this morning. Not that you had a choice, but I want to talk to you kids real quick. Stop your coloring real quick. Listen, this is going to be a really fun text that you can draw a picture from. So I probably should have warned you before you heard Mr. Dan read the text aloud. But if you want to follow along with us a little bit today and draw a picture of what you hear today and then bring it up to me afterwards, I would love to see it. I'm sure they will all be wonderful. And so I am not going to rank them or grade them, but I would love to see them. So bring it up to me afterwards. Let me see what you got, what kind of drawing chops you got. This will be a really fun text, all right? So engage with me. I know you're little and normally you go downstairs, but we would love to have you uh, engage with us as we engage with God's holy word today. Cool. All right. For the rest of us, or for all of us, really, uh, I got a new bike recently, and so I have taken to riding my bike to the office rather than just driving. It takes a little bit longer than driving. Obviously, it doesn't neither take very long, but, uh, but it does give me a little bit more time to reflect, to enjoy the outdoors, to burn a few calories, as it were. And so I was riding up Radcliffe, which is this street, uh, the other day, and I noticed this one front porch with four banners blowing in the breeze. Now, I want to see if you can guess what they represented. If you live on Radcliffe, don't, don't, don't help, help anybody else in here, please. So here's the first clue. There were, there were four banners. I wonder if you can guess what they represent. The second clue, there was a green one, a blue one, a red one, and a gold one. Third clue, the banners made the porch look like a mini Quidditch pitch. All right, some of you are tracking with me. If you haven't guessed yet, you're beyond hope. Also, don't worry about being beyond hope. It's not a big deal. But these were the teams. These were the banners. Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, Slytherin, and Gryffindor. Yes. Um, obviously, these banners are tipping you off to something about the people who live inside 
the house. They're big, if you still haven't guessed it yet, they're big Harry Potter fans, okay? And, they're, and if they're into Quidditch, they're mostly Gryffindor fans, I guarantee you that. Um, flags tell the world whose side you're on. Interestingly, thousands of years ago, flags held another purpose too, especially in battle. They helped you see where your compatriots were. You know, in the heat of battle, while swords are clashing and spears are plunging and sweat is dripping and you're in unfamiliar terrain, it's easy to get turned around and, and, and to remember which direction you entered the battlefield from and where the bulk of your squad is at. It's really challenging in those circumstances. So each army employed a person to hold up their army's banner, to hold up the flag. That's how you knew where your troops were at. The flag represented safety, home base, comfort. It was a sort of a visual cue that you could hitch your hopes to in the heat of battle. Okay, good. Our flag is, is still flying. Our team is still fighting. We're not done yet even though it may feel like it right here where I'm standing. And if you get into real trouble in the battlefield, what the flag represented was a place that you could just sprint toward, where you knew there would be more of your compatriots there to help fight alongside of you. There's safety there. That's a bit of what is happening in Psalm 60 here. Do you see it there in verse 4? Look at verse 4. David says, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, like the bow and arrow is what he's talking about there. I mean, that's kind of heartwarming, isn't it? A heartwarming image for us to, to take home with us. It's a blessing to know that God is there as the refuge in our battle. But the kind of depressing subtext here is that they're still in a battle, right? They're still in a battle. But it's kind of even a little bit worse than them being in a battle still. The reality for David on the ground is that the army has just suffered a pretty sickening defeat. And let's look at who is to blame for this defeat. Look at verse 1. Oh God, you have rejected us. A little bit further. You have been angry. Verse 2. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Verse 3. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. God caused the grief. But who, who received the grief? Look at who is experiencing this heartache. And just before we look at it, let's not let this word heartache just slide so easily off of our backs. The heartache would have been family and friends lying dead on the battlefield. There is a real deep weeping from the pit of your stomach kind of pain that David is feeling here. Look at who's suffering. Verse 1, us, God's people. Verse 3, your people, David is saying. So God's own beloved people. Verse 4, those who fear you. So uh, these aren't poser Christians. These are, these are people that really wanted to follow after God hard. They're the real deal. Verse 5, your beloved ones. Beloved ones. Why would God reject his beloved ones? We all ought to wrestle with this this morning. There will be a day when this is your experience, when you feel rejected, a lost job, a lost loved one, I've felt it recently with the loss of some friendships, it just stings so bad, doesn't it? And you feel rejected, perhaps even by God himself. From David's perspective, from the army's perspective, it feels as if God has outright rejected them, turned his back, let them fall to the opposing army. 
Trinity. We have to have a big enough vision of God to be able to absorb texts like this. The idea of being rejected by God might seem intolerable to you. I don't know. Especially if you're a new Christian or you're just now exploring this idea of Jesus. I can imagine it might sound quite jarring to you to read a text like this. Maybe you didn't think of the Bible as having stories in it written like this where God is seen as the rejecter. But I just want you to know that God didn't do this to David and doesn't do this to us because he is cruel or because he's depriving us of something truly good. God actually knows better than we do. So let me say that again and let it filter down into the uncomfortable part of your soul. God knows better than we do. Do you believe that? When you get a phone call with terrible news or read of the passing of a friend on Facebook like I did yesterday, when the pregnancy test is negative again, when the stunning news of a loved one's diagnosis comes through your text inbox, or what if it's just small? Those are like, those are pretty heavy. Like this last week, we got our kids' teachers' assignments for the fall. And some of them were kind of disappointing. We wanted them to be able to be with certain friends and they weren't able to be. But it was a time with our kids that we could just acknowledge that God is sovereign and that he's good and that he knows better than we do. Listen, church, the scriptures beat this drum from beginning to end. God knows better. Believe this, not, not begrudgingly, but like with your whole heart, Say to yourself, say to your soul, you are right about everything, Lord. You're right. And do you know what? Here's the good news about that declaration. God is big enough and wise enough and good enough to make sense out of your disappointments and to bring good out of them. How else do you explain the redemptive good that came from the cross, from the world's greatest tragedy ever, the cross of Jesus Christ? You, you may not see it on this side of eternity. You may leave this life with a question mark about the point of that suffering or disappointment or rejection. But one day you will know, we will know that every single thing that God has done, even the disappointing ones, has been right and has been good. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives. That may be a hard pill to swallow for you this morning, but it is a pill that brings life. So here's today's big idea. If you had like one sort of sentence that could encapsulate what the whole point of Psalm 60 is, I think it's this. God permits disappointment to deepen our trust. God permits disappointment to deepen our trust in him. And he does this by using rejection. So number one this morning, God uses rejection to reorient our perspective. God uses rejection to reorient our perspective. That's how David starts there in verse one. You, you see it? He says, God, you have rejected us. Now, if you are a competitor at all, you know the pain of embarrassment and defeat after you lose. It could be after your five-year-old beats you in Uno, or when a team of large men, all of which you have never met, lose on the football field. You hide your face, you walk into the other room. Embarrassingly, I don't wanna to talk to anybody else in my house when my squad loses, 
Or you say to yourself, you try to sweeten the deal to yourself. You say, if, if the ref just would have changed that one call, we would have gotten the W. Or if I would have just played the draw four rather than the wild, then I could have stuck it to my four-year-old, <laughs> put her in her place. You try to find someone or something to blame other than yourself or other than your team. This is 10 times worse for David. Feel the weight of his loss. He's hurting. He's embarrassed. He's sad for the men who died. More than that, he's sad and hurting for the families. Of those men who died, he probably feels like he's let them down. And he's trying to make sense of it all. Trying to find someone or something to blame. And who does he blame? But God himself. And the thing about it is, God doesn't even correct him. Oh, sure, maybe their military strategy wasn't as sound as it could have been. But even so, in the end, because God is utterly sovereign, David hangs the weight of this loss around God's neck. It's your fault, God. You rejected us, and we lost, and they're dead. But what David doesn't realize yet is that God is using this rejection to reorient his perspective. He's going to deepen David's trust in him by allowing this disappointment. In his brokenness over the loss of this battle, David's perspective reorients. And God uses the sting of rejection and of loss to do this. Look at when the transition happens there in verse 4. He's lamenting in verses 1 to 3, just pouring out his heart to God. But something happens, a shift happens in verse 4. He looks up from the battle. And he sees this flag, this, this banner still flapping in the breeze. And he realizes it's not quite over yet. When I was a kid, all the kids on my block would come out on summer nights to play Capture the Flag. I have countless memories of sweaty palms and a fast-beating heart as I crouched low in some bush trying to avoid being caught in enemy territory by one of the older kids. And sometimes I would get caught. And my shoulders would slump, and I'd be embarrassed. I just hurt my team, and I walked to jail. But when I'd sit down in that jail, I could still look up and see my team's flag still there in the distance. I knew there was still hope for our team. We hadn't lost yet. And even better, someone still could theoretically come and free me from jail so I could rejoin my squad and help, right? That's the feeling in verses 1 to 5. The hope is still there. Look at verse 1, restoration. Verse 2, he's hoping for repair. Verse 4, hoping for safety. Verse 5, for salvation. See, God is using the sting of defeat in David's life to turn David's gaze upward, to see the real hope and the cause for victory anyway. The battle is lost, but the war is still in play. So the next time that you are caught in a situation in which you feel abandoned or you feel panicked about a particular loss that you have suffered or disappointed with God for a set of circumstances that he has sort of forced you through, can I urge you to pick your gaze up and look to the banner that is flapping in the breeze? Isaiah 11 actually tells us that God's banner is not some kind of piece of material. God's banner is actually the Messiah himself. Check this out with me. This is so cool. Isaiah 11. It'll be on screen behind me. Isaiah 11 starts out like this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the Christian Bible, you may or may not realize this, but this is actually a prophetic description of David and then eventually of David's eventual son, his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus himself. We're not going to unpack all that today. I'm not going to try to prove that to you today. You're just going to take my word for that today. And we'll circle back to Isaiah 11 some other time. But but I want you to check out the change up in botany here, starting in verse 10. So in verse 1, you've got the shoot of Jesse. Look at verse uh, 10, though. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nation will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. He will raise a banner for the nations. So there's a shift from being the fruit of Jesse in verse 1 to being the root of Jesse in verse 10. Jesus is the eventual fruit of Jesse, and he is the original root of Jesse. This will mess you up right here if you think about it too long. He created David, Jesse's son. He created David, Jesus created David, and yet he humbled himself to be born of David, to rescue his people. What an incredible thing that we get thousands of years before Jesus even breathed his first earthly breath, we find out that he is both the root and the fruit of David. This is a supernatural book. And I just want to encourage you to let it spellbind you. Get into this book. God penned this thing and Jesus fulfilled this thing. Read the word, people. And with all this root and fruit talk, I hope you didn't miss what else Jesus is called there. A banner for the peoples. A banner for the peoples. Jesus, for us as New Testament Christians, Jesus is the banner that is waving in our battle right now. Jesus' death and victorious resurrection is still flapping in the breeze, reminding you that the battle is not over yet. Right now in the middle of your own battle, I don't know what that might be for you. It's not with swords. It's in your spirit over something. Whatever it is that you are up against, if you are a Christian, that banner is still flying. Jesus still died and he still rose. He is your Messiah. We are still scrapping. We're still fighting. But one day Jesus will return to plant that banner firmly and finally in the ground, representing his victory over our sin and ultimately over death. So whatever it is that you're experiencing right now, in your soul, in your spirit, will you let it sort of reorient you to that banner? You might be suffering significantly right now, but look to God's banner. And specifically, remember, Isaiah 11 tells us that banner is Jesus himself. Look to Jesus. Turn off the TV and open the book for real hope. Gather faithfully with the church, even if you don't want to or don't feel like it. Ask people to graciously intrude into your life and be humbly vulnerable with them as you each seek to point each other to the banner in the battle. This is your primary role with other believers in this church, pointing them to the banner in the midst of their battle, pointing them to the crucified and risen Christ in the middle of their battle. You can keep going because the banner is still waving. That's what you tell people. Besides, even if you lose the battle here, and eventually you, you will, you will breathe your last. Your heart will beat for the last time. The amazing thing about God's banner is that it flies independent of you. 
independent of your pain, independent of your death, it's still flapping in the breeze, reigning victorious over sin and death. Still, like we said a few times recently as we worked through James, if you're a Christian, you never have to wonder why something is happening in your life. The answer is always to make you more like Jesus and help you make it all the way to Jesus. That's what was happening in David's life. He was being reoriented to the source of his strength and victory. It's that simple. So please don't leave the battlefield. Find the banner instead and sprint towards it. Sprint towards Jesus Christ. And I want to point out another interesting thing here in Psalm 60. Look at that inscription, which, Dan, you totally dominated. I don't know how much you practice on those names, but I'm not going to do as well as you did here. But look at that inscription. An inscription is like a little bit of a preview for what the psalm is going to be about. It gives like a little bit more explanation and insight about the setting which the psalm was written in. So it starts out there, to the choir master. And we've seen this recently before as we worked through other psalms this, uh, over this summer. This psalm is for the community. It's a communal lament designed to be sung by a choir. Keep reading. It says, according to Shushan Iduth. Now, this is Hebrew for, and maybe some of your translations have this written in the inscription. It's actually Hebrew for, according to the lily of the testimony. According to the lily of the testimony. So almost certainly, this would have been like a musical cue for the choir. Like a tune that they would have all known that they could have sung these words to. Like if I told all of you right now, let's, let's take a break here and we're going to sing Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island, all right? You would know all the words because you have them right here in front of you, but you would know the tune by heart because you know that tune. If you're like 20 or younger, or probably if you're like 50 or younger actually by this point, you might not know what Gilligan's Island is. Again, don't sweat it. But anyway, for those of you who do, you would know the tune. And I'm super serious about this. It's actually possible to sing Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island. We did this all the time in high school. I mean in preschool. But um, the, tune, the tune tips you off as to the melody that would have been sung. It was the name of a familiar tune, this Lily of the Testimony, and would have been easily able to sing these words of Psalm 62. Keep reading in the inscription. It says, A Mictam of David. Just a Quick minute, some of you are still trying to sing Amazing Grace to Gilligan's Island, and I want to encourage you to stop right now and plug back in. Um, a mictam of David. Nobody actually knows what this means. Uh, it was probably another musical term. Next he says, for instruction. In other words, this isn't just a recounting of history in this psalm. It actually has function in your life. It's designed to train us toward something, instruction. Its design is to give you traction in your frustration. One of these things, one of these things that gives you traction is looking to your banner when you are in trouble. Moving on, keep reading that inscription. It says, when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now this is the part that I was really trying to get us to right here. This is a clue to figuring out exactly what's happening in Psalm 60, or at least the context around it, the story, the real-life story of what was happening. It tells us just enough information to tip us off to the situation that David was facing when he penned this psalm. Uh, it comes from 2 Samuel 8, 13, and 14. Here's what's going on. 
David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. There's that Valley of Salt again. Then he put garrisons, garrisons is like a group of military troops in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Okay, two things here real quick. First, I just want to note the discrepancy in the numbers. Second Samuel says that there were 18,000 Edomites that were killed. And Psalm 60 says it was 12,000. I think this is likely just a timing thing. When David penned Psalm 60, it was like this moment in history. He's sitting there on the battlefield, weeping right after this moment when he suffered this defeat. But when 2 Samuel was written, it was sort of written as a concise overview of the entire battle or maybe like the series of battles. So that 12,000 number was just an incomplete counting since it happened before the end of the war. Second, and here's what I think is actually really applicable to us here and now thousands of years after this war is complete. Look at that last phrase up there on screen. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. How in the world does that square with Psalm 60? David is moaning about rejection. He's begging for repair. But in 2 Samuel 8, a description of the exact same time in David's life, shrugs that off and is like, David dominated this whole thing. What gives? What explains this tension? Well, I think, again, likely it's because 2 Samuel is recapping the, war, the entire war and Psalm 60 is giving you a snapshot of that battle within the war. So through the lens of Psalm 60, the situation appeared really bleak. But through the lens of 2 Samuel, the Lord is giving David the victory. This will be our story too, Christian. At any given moment, it may appear that we have been rejected. But when you recap your whole life, it will be shown and proven beyond a doubt that the banner was always flying and God gave you the victory. At the end of your days, the banner was always flying. Jesus was always raised, and he gave you the victory. For David, the first step toward victory, that sort of earthly victory in the series of battles, was turning his head after this defeat and seeing God's banner still waving. Staying within view of the banner puts your pain in perspective. Christian, you must stay within view of the banner. All of the rejections you're experiencing are not disruptions of God's plan for you. They are the plan. God is sovereign and good, and he wants to reorient your heart toward him. Jesus on the cross wailing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son of God. That wasn't a disruption to the plan, praise God. It was the plan. Praise God, it brought about the greatest good this world has ever known. Redemption, full redemption for you and me. Pain will function similarly for us Christians. Again, this may be tough to swallow, but it is true. God reroutes you through ditches to steer you back to him. Let him do this. Do you not think that God could have given David the victory in this battle? Absolutely, of course he could have. But he had bigger plans for David's heart. His plans were not for military victory, but for a reoriented spirituality so that his gaze was turned to his God. God is big enough and wise enough to do this in your life. Only God can be both rejecter and savior. He's the only one who can do both.
So when your life circumstances seem to be going off track, just know that God isn't changing the plan. It's actually part of the plan. And what you ought to do is look up and find that flag and rest in the sovereign Lord of creation. So please, please do. I encourage you to follow the psalmist's instruction here and lament, lament your losses to God. You don't have to shrug them off. Feel the weight of them. Let the tears flow. Take them to the Lord. But realize the point. The point is the refocus on the banner that's still flying. I like what one author says. Her name is Mary Lynn Johnson. She says, The purpose of lament is not merely to vent our stress, which leaves us in despair, but to bring our attention back to God's promises and the hope that we have in Christ. And I might add, to, to bring back our attention to the banner that is still flapping in the breeze, giving us hope and comfort and asylum. He promises that he hears us when we call, Matthew 7. He promises to be near to us, Psalm 34. He promises to be faithful, Deuteronomy 31. He promises that this hurt will end, Revelation 21. He promises that when we seek him, he will transform our hearts to desire more of him, Psalm 37. He will not leave us in the misery of our disappointment because he has not finished the work that he has started in us, Philippians 1. He will assure us of his love as we invite him into the struggle that we feel. That was point one. Two left. These are way shorter. Trust me. All right. Number two, God flexes his sovereignty to solidify our hopes. God flexes his sovereignty to solidify our hopes. Most of us here aren't really up to date on our Bible time geography. I wasn't either before I dug into this this week. But God himself takes center stage at this point in the psalm and he just totally flexes his unrivaled power. He dominates the scene. There are no rivals. All of creation is his from the east to the west, from the north to the south. You may remember this part of geography that the Jordan River sort of flows right down the center of the promised land of, of Israel. And there were some distinctive sections in the promised land and God highlights them here going from west to east repeatedly. And you can follow along there in verse 6 if you want. Verse 6, Shechem, he talks about first, is west of the Jordan. The valley of Succoth is east of the Jordan. Keep following. Gilead, east of the Jordan. Manasseh is west of it. Next he names Ephraim, which is north, and Judah, which is south. What's the point? The point is that these would have all been recognizable portions of the land of the people who originally read these sections uh, or this uh, Psalm 60. It would have been like us saying from Florida to Washington and from Maine to California. It's all America. God's people and his land are all his is what God is saying. No rivals. That's why he associates these little parcels of land with symbols of power. You see it there in verse 7? He says like helmets and like scepters. But then... It's almost like God starts giggling, I think, here. God starts laughing in verse 8. Look, look at it. He's basically like, oh, and all your rivals, David? Your rivals are tagged with descriptions of menial service, a wash basin, and someone God chucks his shoe at. <laughs> you, you know those scenes in movies or in TV shows when the rich guy pulls up in his Maserati and he hops out and he sort of like haughtily chucks his keys over to the, to the servant over there, the car attendant, and he's like, here, dude. Do my bidding. Go park my car. That's, that's what's happening here when, when God tosses his shoe. 
It's not keys, it's a shoe. He says, here's my shoe. Take care of this. The point is that in the end, everyone will do the sovereign Lord's bidding. So God is just telling David, look, these people, these things that you're worried about right now, what is concerning to you right now, they're just my sink where the dirt gets uh, washed off my hands. They're just a lowly servant that I toss my shoes to to take care of, to spit shine. Don't worry, David. I'm sovereign. I got you. Reorient to me. But remember the context here for David. That might sound hopeful to us, but David has just suffered a terrible defeat. For as encouraging as these images are of God being in control and crushing the enemies, there is still death and destruction all around David. God is using this rejection to reorient us and David to our true source of hope. It's not like David, once he heard these words, had a complete reversal of thought. His spirits did not begin to soar. No, he was still a broken man. But what he did was look up to see that banner that's still flapping in the breeze. We can know that when we are down, discouraged, maybe all the way down to depressed, broken, weeping, doubting, we can know that in the end, it will not always be this way. Listen, church, the world is on fire right now. More than any of us have ever seen, the world is on fire, but God reigns. God reigns. And there is a certain restfulness of soul when we keep God's banner in view. Keep it in view. And how do we keep the banner? How do we keep Jesus in view? How do we hang on? If you don't keep in mind that God is sovereign and that there is nothing outside of his control, then you're setting yourself up for panic and despair. But I want to encourage you to watch him flex here in Psalm 60. Revel in your God's dominance. He's a good, good father. He's a good God. It's a good kind of dominance. Don't look at what's going on in the world without also keeping at the forefront of your mind who is in control of the world and whose banner is still flying. So plant a tree. (laughs) Take a walk. Tend a garden. Come tend my garden. You guys have driven past it. Join arms with brothers and sisters here in the church. Work hard and take joy in your job. Eat good food. Drink good drink. Read good books. Take long naps. Laugh out loud. Enjoy Jesus in all these things. And by so doing, you will be taking the war, the battle, to the enemy. God's banner is just there, flapping in the breeze, and it's not coming down. Reminds me of this old hymn. You may be familiar with it. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. God uses rejection. God flexes his sovereignty to calm us. And one last thing, brief thing. Third, God strips our self-trust to sure up our victory. He strips our self-trust to sure up our victory. Derek Kidner, he is a commentator 
especially on the Psalms. He describes this final section, verses 7 to 12, like this. He says, it's one thing to glory in the might of God. It's another thing to venture forth in it. And so David is beginning to venture forth in it. In this final verse, he's picking up his sword, he's grabbing his battle axe, and he's walking back into the fight based on the images that he's seen of God. Look at verse 9. He asks, who will bring me to the fortified city? He's talking about Edom, the enemy for him at that time. Now that David is reoriented to the strength and sovereignty of God, the enemy is no longer the invader. It's no longer Edom coming after David. Now the enemy is the invaded. David's going after them. So with this victorious image of God in view, David straps on his helmets. He gathers up his troops. He gets in formation and he starts marching. But now perhaps with a fresh perspective. Do you see it there in verse 11? He says, vain is the salvation of man. The CSB Bible renders that human help is worthless. Trinity, don't go this on your own. You can't. Go with God. Get up early. Get down on your knees. Sing your heart out like you did this morning. Such an encouragement to me. Come here. Gather with God's people. This is where the banner is most visible. This is where you are nearest the banner of God. When you gather with God's people. You need this on a weekly basis. Go find someone here and pour in or be poured into. Look, all the battle planning in the world wasn't going to save David and his army. Ultimately, victory and defeat are in God's hands. Remember, all of this lost language from Psalm 60 should be put against the backdrop of 2 Samuel 8. Do you remember the difference there? God used this defeat to refocus David on his true need for God's help. Human help is worthless, but with God we shall do valiantly. God's rejection forced something out of David's hands that he had hoped to keep. Autonomy and victory. David wanted autonomy in his victory, but he couldn't claim it, and neither can we. Through losses like this, David began, and we can begin to realize God's plans for our life. Plans for our life do not equate to always winning. It's an important lesson for us to learn today as we close. God's plans for your life do not equate to you always winning. God's plans for our lives do equate to us always keeping his banner in view. That is his plan for your life. Even while you're duking it out with the devil and your own flesh in this broken world. But in it all and through it all, he is working all things together, even the hard things, for your good. Romans 8, 28. So I wonder this morning, is God reorienting your gaze just a little bit as you go about your own spiritual war? Have you lost track of the banner? Has church attendance and involvement become more and more sporadic for you? Have you dropped Bible reading and prayer from your schedule, replacing it with something maybe more riveting to your flesh? You can't afford that, and neither can I. I preach to myself, brothers and sisters, human help is worthless. Vain is the salvation of man. Now, as New Testament Christians, we are not fighting for a promised land anymore like David was. The battlefield has shifted from outward to inward for us. We don't clash swords so much as we do spirits. Our warfare is spiritual. 
David may have lost a physical battle, but we are in the middle of a lifelong spiritual war, aren't we? And I think God is pressing all of us to consider what will happen when we experience failure and disappointment. What happens when our best laid plans are foiled? But one of the really sweet things about this text is this really gracious undercurrent. You may not even notice it. It's not, it's not visible on the surface, but you can sort of feel it tugging you along toward grace. It's this, that our failures, no matter the cause, do not undermine God's plans and purposes for our lives. Our failures, just like David's, did not undermine God's plans and purposes for his life or ours. Just when you think things have reached peak insanity in our world, another bomb detonates and things get worse. It's happened repeatedly for 18 months now. Church, you are living through historically frightening time. We all are. Some of this is our own doing. Some of this is the doing of other sinners. And some of it, some of it is God reorienting, reorienting us to him. But no matter what, our failures do not mean that God has failed. He hasn't. God can and will one day mend up all the fractures, cling to this hope as you watch the banner. In a few minutes, we're going to dust off, knock the dust off, uh, a song that we haven't sung in a long time. It's a really old song with really beautiful words. But it encapsulates some of the ideas in this psalm in a really beautiful way. One of the verses starts like this. Mid toil and tribulation. Does that sound familiar, Christian? And tumult of her war. She, that she is the church, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. While you wait for that peace, church, lock your eyes on the banner. Lock them by gathering with God's people, by going in with God's people, by digging into each other's lives and by meddling, graciously meddling, so that they and you can last in this race. The songwriter continues, till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed. And the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. This week, when disappointment comes, turn. Look over your shoulder and find that banner of the crucified and risen Savior still flapping in the breeze. And remember that God allows disappointments to deepen your trust. Will you pray with me? And as I do, the communion service can come forward. God, we need your help to see our disappointments in this way. I pray that as we feel the sting of rejection, we would turn and focus our spiritual gaze to the crucified and risen Savior, that we would hold to that banner in the midst of our frustration and disappointment. In Jesus' name, amen.